Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One of the things that I feel like is, is so beautiful about the brain is how we are driven to gain new knowledge. The brain evolved to have um, the opportunity to gain knowledge coded as a reward. I love the idea that there is basically a neurobiological, physiological connection between that thing where we all went into lockdown and people said, right, I'm going to get a sourdough starter and I'm going to learn how to bake bread. And the people who are going, we're going to need a vaccine for this. I'm going to go off to my lab. I'm going to work out how to fix it. There's a bird singing outside my window. The other day, I saw an actual daffodil poking through the soil. The snowdrops are out. No, I'm not making this up. Warmer times and longer days are just around the corner. And this is an optimistic episode of Politics on the Couch. As regular listeners know, we like to find a streak of optimism in our political and psychological analysis. Hello, regular listeners. New listeners, welcome. For this episode, we're delving deep into the psychology and the politics of optimism. Not feeling it? Maybe the pandemic is weighing you down. Well, even then, you might be surprised to know how skewed your expectations are towards the upside. Research into attitudes and personal predictions has found that most of us have a baked-in optimism bias. We know about all the bad stuff that happens, but we kind of expect it to happen to other people. We overestimate the likelihood of good things, big and small, that will happen to us in the coming weeks, months and years. We start up businesses and expect them to succeed. Most of them fail. We get married knowing about the divorce rate, but absolutely confident that all the splitting up is done by other couples. In surveys, most of us will judge ourselves to be better than average drivers, better than average friends and lovers. But we can't all be better than average. I know, disappointing, right? So what's going on here? And what does it mean for the way we vote and the decisions that politicians make? To help answer some of those questions, I spoke to Tally Sharrett. She is Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at the Department of Experimental Psychology, University College London. She's also a Wellcome Trust Senior Research Fellow and Director of something called the Effective Brain Lab. Professor Sharrett 
wrote the book on optimism bias. I mean, literally, that is the title of one of her books. And it is excellent. A really engaging, colourfully narrated introduction to some very profound brain stuff. Check it out. Tally Sharrett has also written an award-winning follow-up book about the psychology of changing minds and behaviour. That one's called The Influential Mind. And we get onto some of that material too in the podcast, mainly with reference to the pandemic and climate change. We talked about a lot, in fact, but I began with optimism. And because it's a word that's bandied around quite casually, I started by asking Professor Sharrett to explain exactly what it means in the specific context of a psychological bias. The optimism bias is our tendency to believe that things would be better than what they end up being or better than what the data in front of us would suggest. So it means that your expectations are better than the outcomes, right? Is there a lot of, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Is there a lot of variance per per person, per individual in that? I mean, again, sort of commonly one assumes there is such a thing as an optimistic temperament, whereas what I understand from your research is more or less everyone has some hardwired tendency to overestimate the likelihood of a good outcome in the future relative to the present. Right, and underestimate the likelihood of negative outcomes as well. But I just wanted to make the point that let's say you have a negative expectation. So you think you're going to lose money at this in the stock market, and you actually do lose money, but you lose more than you expected. That's still an optimism bias. So you can have a negative expectations, but if they're not as negative as they should be, that's still an optimism bias. Now, with regard to individual differences, um, yes. So what we, we see is that we see um, the optimism bias in about 80% of the population. There's many different experiments that measure optimism bias in different ways, in different domains. Um, most of them uh, come up with about 80% of the population. So that means that 20% of the population does not have an optimism bias. Uh, those 20%, half of them tend to have um, a pessimistic bias. So they expect things to be worse than they end up being. A lot of those people do have uh, depression, usually uh, severe depression. And then you have um, 10%, so that's half of that 20%, that don't have a bias either way. These people tend to have mild depression. And when I say they don't have a bias, it doesn't mean that they are accurate. It just means that the systematic mistakes that they make, well, it's not systematic. They make mistakes, but they are not systematic. So sometimes they expect things to be a little bit better, sometimes a little bit worse. On average, if you know, average um, these errors, um, then you get no bias at all. And the 80% that do have an optimism bias, indeed, there's a range, right? You can go from mild optimism bias, which is in fact, most of the population has a mild optimism bias, and then all the way to extreme optimistic biases. It seems to me there's a possible distinction between optimism regarding outcomes sort of in the universe that are going to affect me and optimism about my own agency in the universe. So most people think they're better drivers than the average person, which obviously statistically they can't be. But also, as you say, that the stock market is going to turn out well for me. Those seem seem to be two slightly different categories of, of way of looking at the world. But we're optimistic on both fronts. Is that right? So, so no. Um, and you raise a really important point that has a few different components in it. So first of all, what we see is what, what I call and other people call as well, private optimism and public despair. So we tend to see this optimistic bias um, regarding to ourselves, right? So things that relate to ourselves also maybe like our family members to some extent. Um, 
but not necessarily to things that relate to the world at large. So you're not necessarily optimistic about your the abilities of the leaders in your country, not necessarily optimistic about global issues. However, when those um, issues are tightly related to your outcomes, like stock market, right? So if you put money in the stock market, you may become more optimistic about it. If you don't have the money in the stock market, then it doesn't matter for you. And then you don't necessarily have this optimism bias. But you actually raised another important point, which is a, what uh, role does agency pay, play here? And it plays an important role, which is we are more optimistic about those things that we believe we can control. Whether we can control them or not is another thing. Um, but the reason is, is if I think I can control my own destiny, well, of course, I will, you know, drive in the right direction. And that's why we're optimistic. And in fact, people do think that they have more control over their lives than they actually do. And that's the reason that they're optimistic and they're not so optimistic about these global issues, partially because they don't think that they can control them. That's very interesting. So uh, as I've, if I've understood that right, there is almost a kind of a feedback loop where we want to feel we have control and agency over the world, although naturally because of the way the universe operates, that's unlikely to be true a lot of the time. But we sort of exaggerate our capability in that respect, which then feeds back into this general tendency we have to think that we're better at stuff than we are. So we then amplify the control component, which makes us optimistic. If, does that make sense? Yeah, well, well, part of the reason that we believe we have more control over things and, than we actually do um, is that, I'll tell you about an experiment that kind of shows it. So there's a classic experiment where people are asked to press a button um, and they see the light going on or off. And there is no relationship between uh, whether they press the button and whether the light went on and off in reality. But people uh, believe that they do, right? They, they kind of conclude out of their experience that they have control um, because they have a tendency to kind of uh, pay attention more to those outcomes that are consistent with their intention um, versus those outcomes that were not consistent with their intention. Uh, and, and that study, for example, didn't see that in depressed individuals. And that goes back to this idea, depressed individuals have less of a tendency to have an illusion of control. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that they have less of a tendency to have an optimism bias. They have pessimistic bias. <laughs> they think, well, I can't control anything. I can't direct it in the right direction. It's probably just gonna go all really bad for me. There's a kind of risky uh, conclusion one could draw here, which is that uh, the mildly depressed people have the more realistic appraisal of how much agency they actually have. And to the extent, I don't want to be too philosophical about this, uh, but the, to the extent that you could posit an actual empirical model of the world, the slightly depressed person is more right about that than the average person who in who's in the 80% who are optimistic. Yeah, so there are studies that support exactly what you said. So there are studies supporting the idea that mildly depressed individuals um, have a more realistic view of their control over outcomes. Uh, some studies contradict this, so it's a little bit of, you know, muddy, but, but I think there is some support for this idea. In terms of how much that's conditioned by because i don't want to depress our listeners too much you know the, the universe isn't against you don't worry um but in terms of how much that's conditioned by the environment you know go, you, you made this point that people can be quite pessimistic about uh, uh the, the public environment uh, as distinct from what's going to happen to them individually uh, do we know much about how that changes in different sort of 
periods or time so just thinking basically about the pandemic at the moment we're at a what i would i would think would be a kind of a a pessimisticogenic environment where people are likely to be made pessimistic is that what you would expect or is it the opposite that because we're in gloomy times somehow we sort of mine our own optimism deeper to counteract that we we have done um, some research uh, about optimism and people's beliefs during the pandemic. Uh, I think the first finding is, which is not surprising perhaps, but um, very interesting, people are extremely optimistic about their own likelihood of being infected. So people believe they are less likely to be infected by um, COVID than other people of their same age and gender. Uh, and we see this on a large, uh, diverse population. So of course, for each individual, if you tell me I'm less likely to be infected than other people my age and gender, maybe you're right, right? I mean, it could be. But if you take um, a diverse population and you see that on average, they have that belief, that cannot be right, right? Um, so people do have that belief, but at the same time, they believe that uh, COVID well, these studies we, we have done, I, it may have shifted a little bit, but at least until up until about June, people had um, believed that the pandemic and, and COVID is a severe danger to the population. So they had, again, this kind of private optimism, but public despair. They thought, okay, I'm probably better off than other people, but this is quite a threat for the human population. So there was a little bit of optimism there. Um, but also this kind of global pessimism. But I think what is, to me, the most incredible finding with regards to how people have handled um, this situation is the fast adaptation. Um, we started uh, looking at people's mental health and well-being just a few weeks after it all started in March. Um, and we saw um, a significant decrease in happiness, a significant increase in stress. And when I say significant, I mean statistically significant, but the effect itself wasn't as large as you would expect. Only a month later, they already went back to baseline levels of happiness. Stress was still above, above your normal uh, levels, but happiness went to baseline within only four weeks. People adapted very, very quickly. Um, they changed, you know, how, how they lived their lives. And on average, there was really um, great adaptation, which on one hand was extremely surprising. On the other hand, there is so much research that show of show how rapidly humans adapt to very extreme circumstances, you know, losing a loved one, getting divorced, unemployment. Um, it's it's quite amazing. And to adapt in surprising ways to good things as well. So lottery winners sort of revert to the mean of how happy or unhappy they would have been once they've got used to the fact that they've got millions more in the bank. Um, what is the, the sort of evolutionary or adaptive process that's going on there that means we, we, we external events actually sort of only temporarily seem to dent our base level of happiness and, and we default back to a relatively constant position, if I've expressed that right. Yeah, well, I think we have to look at the two effects separately. One effect is my environment is becoming worse. There's some threatening, something threatening has gone on, something terrible happened and I adapt. Well, here, the adaptive value is quite clear, right? I mean, the, the humans have, been, have evolved specifically to quickly adapt to their environment. This is exactly the number one thing that the brain um, is set up to do and our bodies as well. I mean, the rest of our bodies. The brain is very, very flexible. It, you know, you come into the world and you, you just learn and adapt to the situation and it, it continues being flexible. Our brain can adjust and it does it extremely well 
and the adaptive value here is clear, right? We need to adapt something, you know, there's no more food, the temperature is, is different, we need to adapt and we do that. Um, so that's that's the adaptive value. In terms of how come, why is it that when things become much, much, much better, we also go back to, to baseline. And the way, just to say, the, the way that we adapt to these negative situations is we change. It's not like magic, right? We change what we do, um, right? We, we actually act to make things better, right? So instead of meeting in person, now we're meeting in Zoom and, and people start cooking for themselves instead of going to restaurants. I mean, we just do what needs to be done to get to where we need to go. Uh, when things become much better, um, after a while, we again adapt to our environment and go back to, back to baseline levels of happiness. Um, and, you know, when you ask what the adaptive value is, it's not super clear, but potentially one option is that we need to strive for something, right? In order to have a motivation to develop and, you know, invent new stuff and be creative, we need a need. So uh, being very unhappy is not necessarily good, but being extremely joyful all the time also may not actually be very good for our survival because we need something to drive us to want more, to explore, to learn. That's fascinating. So we need to have this capacity to imagine, to be dissatisfied with the present, to imagine uh, something better in the future, which we then aspire to. And it's, yeah, I suppose you can see how that's good, good for evolution. You know, going back to, to the, the pandemic and the way we've we've responded to, to behaviours, whether being overly optimistic in that environment can lead to some bad political choices and political outcomes, both at the personal level, as in, you know, I might get a bit complacent about washing my hands because, frankly, it's not going to happen to me, but also at the po policy level where politicians are thinking that is kind of like the flu. I mean, you saw this in the early stages of the UK government handling of the pandemic, which is all of their sort of base assumptions and the way they've anchored their view of what the policy procedure should be were hopelessly optimistic. I don't think that's even a partisan statement. I think privately they'd probably say that themselves. Yes. Um, so yes, this is, you know, the pandemic is really kind of a you know, textbook case uh, of optimism where there is um, a lot of uh, advantages to being optimistic and even being optimistically biased. If we expect things to go well, it gives us a motivation to act, right? If you think, okay, I'm, I'm gonna do really well in my job. Um, you actually, you know, act to do, you think I'm gonna get a promotion. Well, you do what you need to do, to, do to, to get there. If you think, well, this is, I'm never gonna get that promotion, then you don't try, right? So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because expectations drive actions, actions drive outcomes. However, on the negative side, if you think, well, everything's gonna be okay, you may not take precautionary action, uh, not wear a helmet when you buy, not buy insurance when you should in these cases. And so the pandemic is just another example where if we are too optimistic and we have problems in seeing not even the worst case scenario, but you know, just the likely scenario is, that can, can cause great harm. Um, and in, in this case, death. The problem in this case is not just optimism. It is that it's very difficult to imagine something so different from what we know. And this is something that is a hurdle, not only for response to pandemic, but also things like climate change. We are trying to deal with something that, at least with the pandemic, when it just started, we can't imagine. It's, you know, it hasn't happened to us in our lifetime, although the pandemic has happened, um, you know, in, in the course of history. But in those cases, it's very hard to imagine that that will 
what the consequences will be because when we can imagine things in detail, um, we think they're more likely. There's this relationship between how uh, easy and how detailed your imagination is and the probability you assign to that event. I think there's two, at least two reasons that uh, caused people to focus on unrealistic outcomes, I guess. Yeah, that's really interesting. So let me sort of just backtrack a bit so I've fully understood this. So the, the way in which we can construct a, a sort of an ideation of the future is going to be more plausible, more credible, but if we can make that picture more detailed. And from I think what I've understood from, from what your book actually is that part of the reason that is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is because we have to excavate our own previous experience to construct an idea of the future. So we find it very difficult to project things in the future that we can't, we have no personal resource from in our past that fuels our imagination. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So the way that we imagine things in the future is we take little bits and pieces of experiences in our past and it doesn't have to be our own experiences it could be things like other people's experiences or things that you read in books but a lot of it is things that actually happen to you um, and then you take those bits and pieces you put them together to construct something new and in fact that is a function of memory so the function of memory is not necessarily to remember the past it is to imagine the future right? That's what memory is there for, to help you make better decisions as you go forward. Speaking kind of evolutionarily, if I remembered that saber-toothed tigers, caveman, caveman brain me remembers that saber-toothed tigers hide behind certain kinds of rocks, that's a useful thing to remember from the past so that next time I see those kind of rocks, I don't get eaten by a saber-toothed tiger and then I'm more likely to survive as a species. Right. And what our brain can do, it doesn't take um, these memories as a video-like uh, print. But you have to, to, to kind of think to yourself, well, I saw these specific two lions, uh, you know, behind these specific two rocks, but then you generalize, right? There are lions here that can be behind rocks, they can be behind big bushes and so on, right? So this is where imagination comes in, because it kind of, it creates something new by restructuring a lot of things. And if you think about things like, you know, paintings by Dali, for example. It's this idea that you can take different things that are not necessarily, you don't necessarily see them together at a certain point in time, but you combine them to make something new. And this is, this is in fact why our memories are not necessarily very accurate. Because when we, when we kind of recall a memory, again, we don't actually recall a video um, of what happened, but we recall a reconstruction of what happened. And that can actually cause a lot of mistakes in memory. Those mistakes are perhaps, you know, not as bad because they come from a system that allows us to imagine new things. Right. So even the kind of what they call flashbulb memories, which are the classic things of I remember exactly where I was when Kennedy was assassinated or I remember exactly where I was on 9-11. Actually, it turns out you don't. I mean, you remember broadly where you were, but the clarity, the intensity, as I understand it, of those memories is a, an imprint of the emotional impact more than an actually detailed photographic representation of the moment. Right. And what's interesting about the flashbulb memories is that for most memories in the past, you don't actually, you're not sure that you remember them quite 
accurately. You think, oh, I saw this person. I'm not quite sure where or when, and you know. But for flashbulb memories, which are memories of very um, arousing events, which could be negative or positive. You know, it could be your wedding. It could be the birth of your kid. It could be an accident. It could be the death of Diana. So it's it's positive or negative. You um, have this feeling that you remember that with great detail and accuracy, while in fact, those memories are not much more accurate than any other memories. And that's why these are especially interesting. And the reason that we have this feeling is that these events are, you know, they, they seem to be important, right? Um, they have this kind of stamp that says, this is, this is an important thing. Uh, it probably has high significance. And this is what emotion does. Emotion highlights and brings your attention to those things that are important Ver they could be good you want to do them again <laughs> they could be bad it's something that you want to avoid uh, in either case it could be things that have impact on the rest of your life i have a slight hypothesis now that pops into my head with regard to this that might be completely wrong um if memory has that function and we're constructing an idea of the future based on the resource we have to draw on from the past uh, and also that is then feeding or the optimism bias to the extent that you know we imagine the future from a, a sort of a best interpretation available of of what we liked from the past there is a sort of inherent conservatism small c conservatism in the way we're looking at the future i was just thinking back to what you were saying which was really interesting about how difficult it is to sort of engage with problems like climate change or another one would be the aging of the population social care no one really wants to concentrate very hard on imagining themselves getting very old and decrepit so we simply don't you know we just we know we sort of know it's going to happen at some stage but we, we blank it out i wonder if that means in sort of political terms some of these biases go with the grain of a kind of a conservative way of looking at the future that we don't really want to engage with radical drastic solutions or ideas because that's not the way our brains are kind of wired to think about the future so it is true that on average um the average person will find solutions that are not radical, right? Solutions that are closer to what we have experienced. The good thing is that we have a, a range of people with a range of ideas and so on and so on. And all, it need, all you need is to have a few people that happen to come up with these radical ideas. And if those rat, if they have, you know, enough power and so on, these people with radical ideas sometimes are able to take those ideas and change the rest of us. Um, and it's a bit like a mutation, I guess you can think about it, right? You know, if you, evolution is, yeah, the DNA goes along and then suddenly there's one mutation, it could be by accident, but that mutation ends up to be something that's extremely helpful. And so it replicates itself. So I think we could, you know, people talk about memes and so on. Ideas are a little bit like that. Yes, most of the ideas will be, you know, mainstream down the line, but then you have once in a while, these ideas that are really uh, different, but also very helpful. And they do take on and change what we do as a species. It also gives tremendous potential power in a good and a bad way, sort of a value neutral way to leaders or individuals who are able to project their imagination into other people's imaginations. So the, basically the function of inspiration that the people who have that, uh, that little bit more imaginative or creative or articulate in expressing it, the ability to animate that in other people becomes the presumably central to charismatic leadership. Right. So, so if I understand you correct, you mean communication? Yeah, basically. That, you said in one word what I managed, took about 
two minutes. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> because because you have to do two things. First of all, you have to have this different idea um, that hopefully is also a helpful and good one. But then, of course, if it just stays in your head, that's not enough, right? You have to be able to take that idea out of your head into the world and convince other people that this is a good idea. And I guess um, that kind of relates a little bit to my second book, The Influential Mind, where I talk about um, how can you convince people? You know, who are who who are the good people? Who who's good at doing this and why? In the optimism bias, where you you talk about elevation, which is this really interesting concept uh, in terms of what a good speech or a good rhetorician will do that will give people that sense of uplift and animate their optimism. Presumably that is related to to this question of how you persuade, how you convince people. You're tapping into the natural tendency people have to want to be uplifted and to feel optimistic. Yeah, so emotion in general um, is something that we pay attention to. And, and that's true with a whole range of emotions, not just positive, but also negative. Um, we do pay attention more if you arouse fear or anger or to some extent sadness, but it's mostly this high arousing emotions that, that people are uh, attending to more, but also excitement and surprise, right? But also hope. Um, so anything that is emotional, we pay attention to. The reason is, is quite obvious because we have evolved to um, pay attention to things that are arousing because because most of the time they're important. So that is one thing that's important. The other thing that's important um, is whether there is a story, right? Um, when, when people can convey a message within a story, we tend to remember it better. We tend to think about it more rather than just data. So this is a problem that a lot of us have, like scientists, right? We come in, we say, here's a graph, here's the data, you know, here, vaccine works. Um, and people just don't listen to it, don't necessarily remember to it, don't pay attention to it. And again, it's because we have evolved over millions and millions of, of years to learn from stories. We learned from what happened to people around us and in, in the village and in our family. Um, we take examples um, and then we, conclude things. And now we have better uh, tools to both gather data and as well as analyze it to get to those conclusions. But we still pay attention to stories and stories are still something that affect us to a great degree. Um, and so to convey a message, we need to rely on our data, right? But the data would not be enough to convince something of the truth. And these are different parts of the brain, as I understand it. So you, the, the, all the, that sort of emotional arousal bit is the amygdala, cr crudely speaking, which is the earlier evolved bit of the brain. And that's where, you know, an, an emotive picture or an image, whether literally a photograph that will get people you know, emotionally driven. If you think about the way uh, political advertising works, obviously you use certain images to to get the emotional sort of glands pumping, overriding the the sort of prefrontal cortex, which is the bit that would actually analyze actually how much am I at risk of a terrorist attack or actually how bad is crime? Or should I be as afraid of this as this politician wants me to be? So there is that, am I right in thinking that's basically a tension you describe between the sort of different ways we take in information is literally a contest between different parts of our brain over how we judge information. So that's a popular narrative. And I guess there's a little grain of truth or there's a grain of truth in it, but it's it's not quite right. So it is true that the way that our brain evolved is it started off with the very low levels to just have us move had another part um, in that the brainstem. And then it had another part, which is 
you know, amygdala and so on, which is also important for arousal and so on. And then it had finally the neurocortex, which is um, what mammals have and humans have, an especially large one. First of all, all these regions, whether they are old in evolutionary history or new, are connected to each other. There is feedback loops. Um, they do not work alone ever. Second of all, because both emotion and I wouldn't say the word rational, but you know, um, making decisions that are helpful in, to gain reward and avoid harm is important for both low-level animals and high-level animals. It is not the case that one region only does one thing. What do I mean? Well, let's start with humans. For us, emotion is not something that is distracting. It's giving us information. It's a very, very important part of the information that comes in in order to make a decision. We would not want to live without emotion. And in fact, people who have damage to both amygdalas have a hard time in, in many things. It's not something that is, oh, that's distracting me from making the right decision, the rational decision. No, it's helping you in many, many ways. And we can kind of talk about different examples. Second of all, the low levels, such as the amygdala, they do quite sophisticated computations to figure out what's good. So if you, you think about the, the first organisms, they had to make decisions like they had to move towards the sun, uh, towards warmth, sorry. Uh, they had to move towards water, right? They had to make these decisions. Um, and in order to make them, they had to have some kind of sophisticated computations. Um, and they could do that with very, you know, simple machinery. I don't really like this distinction and I understand where it's coming from, but it's not the case. The old parts of our brain, they do things and they do things extremely well and they um, are not there to interfere, they're there to help. And then and the neurocortex, on the other hand, it actually has lots of biases, right? Now, where, where, where this kind of dichotomy is correct is that um, it is true that the neurocritics, for example, is important for language, right? Um, so these kind of abstract concepts or, and these kind of things. But on the other hand, these low level regions turned out to be very important to drive us to want to know, to gain knowledge. Um, so that is very much the, the needs to gain knowledge is very much related to areas in the midbrain. Very, very, you know, old evolutionary regions that drive you to have all those books behind you. That's fantastically important because you're absolutely right that, that there is this crude dichotomy that, you know, I'm, and I've almost certainly been guilty of it, not just in this conversation, but in other conversations as well, that wants to see the sort of, as you almost blame kind of caveman brain for getting me into all sorts of trouble. And then I think a lot of people think that there is a sort of hyper rational scientific Bit, you know, scientist comes in and basically puts caveman on a leash, and then you manage your 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 biases uh, accordingly, and you get towards better outcomes. And from what you just said, it, particularly that last bit, that the will to learn and the will to acquire all this information is such a primal urge and part of our survival impulse uh, that I hadn't really kind of understood that relationship properly. And and it connects, I think, to something that that you've written about or spoken about, which is that. Sometimes people, you know, who perform very well in high cognitive functions, great mathematicians can be more subject to certain cognitive biases because they apply that 
that capability, that thinking to justifying the decisions that are actually driven by their biases rather than challenging their biases. Yes, absolutely. This is why when, when you kind of try to like pinpoint how bias works, both like neurally and computationally, you find it to arise, um, not necessarily from those lower levels. Right. And you're absolutely right. And this is one study that I like a lot um, that I talk about many times is, is from Don Kahan at Yale University, where um, he looked at individuals and he wanted to know who's really good at math and analytical skills and who's not so good. So he gave a thousand individuals a math test, divided them into those with really good math skills, those with not so good math skills, and then gave them two data sets to look at. One data set was um, looking at whether skin uh, lotion was helping skin rush. And uh, he said, okay, look at the data, analyze the data, tell me whether this lotion is helping. And those with better math skills did better at this um, and you know, gave the correct answer. Then he gave them another data uh, set. And this data set, he said, is looking at whether gun control laws are reducing crime. So look at the data, analyze the data, and tell me whether uh, this, uh, the gun control laws are indeed re reducing crime. And what he found here was that, first of all, people did much worse than the skin lotion task because here people had very strong uh, beliefs about whether uh, gun control should reduce or will reduce. And um, they had very strong preferences regarding whether they wanted gun control uh, or not. And those beliefs and preferences uh, interfered with their ability to analyze the data. And relatively speaking, those with better math and analytical skills actually did worse because it seems that what they were doing is they weren't necessarily using their skills to find the truth, but rather to find faults that with the data because, you know, that they were unhappy with. If I understand this right, the intensity of how strongly you feel about that, like I feel much more strongly about gun issues than I do about skincare issues. And therefore, there's going to be a correlation between the, the strength of that feeling and my resistance to me changing my mind on that subject and the amount of reasoning capability that I bring to it is more likely to tilt towards reinforcing my prejudice than it is to actually understanding the data or unpicking the prejudice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you're absolutely also right that if we didn't have a neurocortex, we won't be able to read data, right? We won't be able to do math. Well, not explicitly. But on the other hand, um, that's not to say that the neurocortex is this kind of like rational, non-biased um, organ um, and is just getting this kind of interference from below. There is a danger, I think, in, in around all this stuff that, you know, that you get into a very jaundiced view of the way politics works because, and this relates to this slightly false dichotomy that we've been talking about, where you think the successful politicians and the candidates are the ones that are gaming a kind of a weakness in the human brain and are, are going with the grain of all sorts of biases and are playing that system well. And the less successful politicians are the ones who are falling, you know, who aren't good at narrative or who are trying to solve problems with spreadsheets and maths rather than anything else. Is that an unfair account of, of sort of what does and doesn't work in terms of persuading people and by extension politics? I'm just bluntly speaking, I'm thinking of someone like Boris Johnson, who's extremely successful in politics mm -hmm. at a certain level by persuading people to, to do things that his critics would say aren't such a great idea. I think there is a, 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 as I say, a jaundiced view of him would be, well, all he's doing is very effectively gaming the bits of the brain that 
make us wrong about stuff rather than helping people to get these questions right. Yeah. So, so whether someone automatically or consciously uses stories and emotion and, you know, triggers hope in people and so on to um, get them to believe a certain things on its own, that's not evil. In fact, it's necessary. In the influential mind, I start with this story of the debate for uh, presidential candidates for the Republicans in 2016, where um, it was a debate between Donald Trump and Dr. Ben Carson. Um, and they were talking about all sorts of things. And then the, the moderator said to Ben Carson, you know, Donald Trump many times has uh, talking about this uh, association between childhood vaccines and autism. Um, you're a doctor, you know, you're a physician. What do you have to say about this? Um, and Ben Carson said, well, look, there's a lot of data, a lot of studies showing that there isn't a relationship between the two. Um, he's an intelligent man, he said about Donald Trump. Uh, once he sees the data, he will be convinced otherwise. And then the moderator turns to Donald Trump and asks him, what do you what do you think? So then Trump goes into the story about um, an employee that he had and the employee had a small child and the child got vaccinated. And then finally, some time later, the child got autism. And listening to this, I had a strong reaction to that story at the time. Actually, my, my son, uh, my second child was about eight weeks old. And I had a strong reaction. It kind of, although I knew the data and I know, you know, all the science and all of that, it got me thinking, uh, I don't know. It just, I had this reaction. And once I had the reaction, I thought to myself, well, this is interesting, right? Why am I having this reaction? If I'm having a reaction, I'm a neuroscientist. I, you know, I'm trained to make uh, conclusions based on data. And not only am I neuroscientist, I'm a neuroscientist. So I know a little bit about autism as well. Um, and yet I'm affected by this one story told by Donald Trump, right? That's kind of crazy. But on the other hand, I think Ben Carson missed something here, right? He had an opportunity to convince perhaps millions, perhaps thousands of people to vaccinate their kids. And he, he wasn't successful at all, right? And so this is problematic because at the end of the day, by not taking into account how the brain works, by not taking into account the fact that to, to have people understand what you're saying, you have to go beyond the data. It's a problem. So I don't think that using stories um, or using uh, emotions such as hope, for example, is problematic per se. What's problematic is that when you're using it to, you know, for evil, I guess, or, or you're using it um, and it's misaligned with the facts. So the Ben Carson thing there, what he should have done something more along the lines of, just remember how you know what smallpox was, what polio was, and tell the story of the children walking in calipers who are suffering from polio and how that doesn't happen anymore and our children are running around free. You can imagine how you would construct that story. Right. So suddenly it's an uplifting uh, narrative of hope and vaccines did this and we can do this again today and get to a brighter tomorrow. Um, I mean, I'm no expert, but I imagine that would be the way to, to frame that a little bit better. What is the equivalent sort of narrative or more emotionally resonant mechanism that you can use to overcome that 
optimism bias the problem that we were talking about earlier with regard to something like climate change or an aging population what what works to get people to focus on scary things in the future in a sustained enough way that you can actually start talking about the solutions that's a really big question and i'm sorry if there's an answer to it um there's a few problems in convincing people about climate change one is it's way in the future it's probably not gonna mostly affect us but other generation doesn't mean that it's not going to affect us, but the real, real strong effects are going to be for the for the future generations. Um, so that's the first problem, because people kind of mostly care about their outcomes um, and perhaps their kids. But going way into like, you know, uh, the next generation, it's, it's a little bit problematic. As we said, it's hard to imagine these events. And finally, these are negative events. We don't like to dwell on negative events and imagine them if we don't really need to. Uh, there's some cases where we need to, and we can talk about that. So that's problematic. And also, um, there's another problem, which we feel we don't have any control. The way that it's usually conveyed is, well, maybe you can recycle. But on the other hand, there's lots of data saying, well, recycling is not going to be, that's not the solution, right? So you kind of feel like, well, what can I do anyway? So you don't have control, right? And control, as we said, is, is quite important. There's, I guess, uncertainty about the exact outcomes, although we know this is going to happen. But how is, you know, what exactly is going to happen? We don't know. It's going to be bad. But it's it's hard to kind of know exactly, uh, you know, when and, and what and, and so on. So all of these are very problematic. And also, finally, very, very important, the solutions tend to be framed as we're going to lose. That is, in order to solve this problem, we need to consume less, right? It's all these negative things that you're going to have to do in order for future generations to have more than they would otherwise. I think the important thing here is to try to reframe it as much as we can as we will do these things and actually it will generate positive outcomes. For example, in order to fight climate change, we need to come up with all these new technologies, right? Um, and these technologies can in fact, at the end of the day, um, as a side effect, affect us positively now. People are very, very loss averse, aren't they? And that's another sort of bias in effect that we put a much higher price on what we've got now being under threat than we do on the hypothetical good thing we might have in the future. So you have to really work hard to persuade people. If you start with the proposition, this is going to involve a huge sacrifice from you in terms of your lifestyle, you're gonna to have to give up your car, you're gonna to have to drive a smaller car, all that sort of stuff. Immediately, you're triggering resistance in people's minds. Is that roughly right? Yeah, so there's there's a temporal discounting, which is um, we prefer, we, we find things now in the present uh, more important than things in the future in, you know, on average. Um, and then it's just in this case, we're losing. And mostly, the framing is we're not going to gain someone else is going to gain, right? So it's not even the your your average loss aversion It's just like, oh, you have to sacrifice, but you're not going to gain anything. When that is not necessarily true and can certainly be reframed as this will help you, this will create jobs, uh, this will create a better, better future, you know, just having better air quality can affect your own health. Or even, you know, let's talk about, um, you know, traveling less and so on. On one hand, you know, people like to travel, they like to go on vacations and so on, but they don't necessarily like business travel that much and saying, well, this is great now, we can do a lot of this over Zoom, right? You get more time, you know, with your family and so on. That's a positive. So if we can kind of focus mostly on the positive outcomes and not necessarily focus on what you can't do, right? 
don't eat meat, don't travel, and so on. I was reading something you, you, you'd you written about the different explanatory styles that people have depending on you know whether they're slightly more depressed in their outlook or prone to depression or more optimistic, that the way you narrate the world around you makes a big difference. So something bad happens to you. One fork in the road goes to this terrible thing happened to me because uh, these things always happen to me and I'm slightly useless and I'm not good in relationships or I can't do my job properly and you go down a negative path or you think, you know, stuff happens in the world. It's, you know, it wasn't really my fault. I mean, in fact, my boss was a bit of a asshole anyway, so I'm better off without that job. And you go down. And so whether those sort of personal explanatory modes that people can move between can be extrapolated to a more sort of wider collective social way we describe problems to ourselves. You can think about it in this way, but you still need to emphasize the positive outcomes for the individual, not only for society, uh, not only for others, also for the individual. And it can be silly things. I mean, in our department, in the sorry, in the university, they give out these kind of uh, green awards, you know, for the department who does the best, you know, most of the green action and so on. This really motivates people. I mean, really, um, people in the department go out of their ways to come up with new strategies and, and you know, and, you know, they do it for, for good. But also it's a motivator to see like, oh, we've won the green awards 10 years in a row or something. Um, so they care about their outcomes. And if you can align personal outcomes with social outcomes, that is, of course, the best. So essentially that thing that we did when we were raising our children, when they were little, I, you know, when I had toddlers and you sort of have a little sticker chart. And if you eat all your greens, you get a sticker. And then at the end of the week, you get a lollipop. You know, we haven't really stopped being responsive to that sort of technique as adults um you can still use that you know, immediate reward gratification to build towards the positive outcome at, which is as i vaguely remember from parenting my young children when you remember to get it right which isn't always the case much more effective than just shouting at them and saying don't do that or this bad thing will happen or worse still don't do that because I say don't do it and I'm a parent, you just have to do as I say. But you know, when you when you remember to do the sort of positive reinforcement thing, it works. And then so presumably, if I understand you rightly, it works at a social policy level as well, if we get it right. And it definitely works on, on adults. I mean, all you have to do is open Twitter or Facebook. And it's always kind of like, it's absolutely amazing to me. But on the other hand, I, I can absolutely understand it. People go out of their ways for those little likes and hearts and retweets. I mean, every little like or, or heart uh, gives people a little boost to the ego, a little tiny reward. Adults of all ages really care about these things and they will go out of their way for these, you know, positive feedbacks, these immediate positive feedbacks. So if there's if the, if there's hasn't been ever been any doubt about it, um, I think social media has shown us that we look like adults, but there's we're definitely children inside in many ways. Um, and if you tap into that little child, uh, you, I mean, it, it's amazing. The effect is amazing, which is what social media has done, right? And basically, social media taps into kind of your childish instincts um and it's super effective yeah it sort of gamifies social interaction and that's happening as i understand it at a, at a chemical ne neurological chemical level you're getting the same you know it's the, the sort of little dopamine hit that you get uh it would be similar to the one that activated i mean i'm an ex-smoker you know so the, the one that would be activated 
by a narcotic in some way that is it's literally addictive getting that little sense of reward all the time yeah so the reward system is in charge of processing all these different rewards it might be it's depending on the reward it could be a little bit different but um in general yes there are what we call primary rewards which is things that you need to for immediate survival water food and then there's sex which is also considered a primary reward and then you have secondary rewards these are things that are associated with primary rewards so things like money you get money you can't eat money but you can take the money to buy some food um, and then you have these more uh what we call kind of cognitive rewards um which is even uh, learning something new is rewarding so gaining gaining knowledge can actually be very rewarding as well but definitely social feedback, positive social, even a smile, right? When you see someone smile, this is why smiley faces work quite well. Yeah, that's fantastic, interesting. But particularly that point about taking new information, when you have that kind of aha moment, the eureka moment is not a sort of, I mean, it is obviously about a rational process that's gone on, but I hadn't really made that connection before. It's associated, it's a much more visceral, emotional thing that you're getting that same sense of satisfaction. And we probably, in, in if you were sort of to draw up the list of things that make you feel good or things that might improve the quality of your life, you'd think, well, if I had a bit more money or you know, if I had a bigger house or a nicer car or the sorts of things people put on those lists, most people would probably forget to put uh, learning new stuff but that it presumably does actually substantially increase your sense of, of well-being. Yes, I, I think one of, one of the things that I feel like is, is so beautiful about the brain is how the way that we are driven to gain new knowledge is that the brain evolved to have um, the opportunity to gain knowledge uh, coded as a reward. Um, just like food and water and so on. And so um, it uses, it kind of hijacks the same neural structures and the same, it uses the same algorithms that are already used to get you out of your house to get water, food and sex. And it uses the same algorithms and neural structure to drive you to get new information because it is important for survival, right? Um, it may not be so much the immediacy of that survival, Right. It's not like if you don't eat, you're you know going to die after a short amount of time. If you don't learn something new in a week, you're not going to die. But in the long run, we need that in order for, for example, be able to overcome things like pandemic. Right. It is that drive for knowledge that drove people to learn new things. And when the time comes, it does help humans to survive, to get over the pandemic and hopefully get over climate change as well. I love the idea that there is basically a neuro biological physiological connection between that thing where we all went into lockdown and people said right I'm going to get a sourdough starter and I'm going to learn how to bake bread and the people who are going we're going to need a vaccine for this I'm going to go off to my lab I'm going to work out how to fix it that was I mean, one of those superficially well actually in practice looks substantially more important and valuable than the other one uh, I'm glad we've got a vaccine I'm relaxed about sourdough but actually the fact that that the impulse the human impulse is sort of the same in both cases if i've understood what mm -hmm. you're telling me correctly is is magnificent i mean what a great species we are that's i'm, I'm completely convinced now. absolutely and I, I think what's what we the great thing about this pandemic is that we had the opportunity to go online and learn about whatever we wanted right i mean the fact that we had um 
we have uh, computers and so on was helpful in many ways. You know, you can buy things uh, online, get your groceries and so on, talk on Zoom. But it also gave people an opportunity. They were stuck at home and what they did, they went online. And we actually have done the research um, that we're writing up now. Turns out what they did is they went online and they asked a lot more why and what than ever before. And this is a proportion of all searches. It's not just that they went on. I mean, obviously we went online more, we read more and so on, but we specifically were asking a lot of why and what, and also how, right? As you said, how do I make bread? Um, how do I use Zoom? How do I make um, a mask out of um, socks? But also they were just asking just general knowledge because you're stuck at home and there's a fret going on. And I think one of the reactions is, I, I need to know more stuff. I mean, it is great that we can bring an optimistic frame to the, the situation that we've been in recently. Uh, and uh, as we've discussed, we're pretty hardwired to to find the optimism in this. But I, I suppose we should also be mindful of the fact that there will be probably people listening to this who would not consider themselves optimistic and would be navigating more the horror of what's been going on and a sense of, of despair of what's going on. I suppose this sort of brings us back to what we were saying earlier a little bit, that, that how to strike that balance between challenging the, the biases and, and wanting to be as realistic as we can be about the situation that we're in, whether the pandemic or just in general as, as, as human beings, and sort of embracing optimism as an evolutionary function that, that gets us out of all sorts of difficulties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm glad you, you asked this question because I, I usually, when I, I talk about how people have adapted so well and on average happiness went back to baseline within a month of the pandemic, um, I usually remember to, to say something about the caveat, which is quite important, which is this is only a bird's eye view of um, the average response. Right. But if you go in and look at subpopulations, you um, absolutely see there are subpopulations that have not adapted, that are having a very hard time. Who are these subpopulations? One, people with a predisposition to mental health. Um, two, income matters. The number, uh, the number one, actually, okay, so the number one predictor of happiness during the pandemic was a sense of control. People with greater sense of control were happier. The number two was income, right? So people in with less income were definitely not adapting as well. The idea here is simply that to adapt well, if you had more income, it was, it was easier, right? If you can use your money um, to uh, do all sorts of things that you need to do, um, it, during the pandemic, like a lot of people, you know, if they were living in the middle of the city if they, and they had money and they had a second home, they just moved to that second home, right? So these things really matter for how you react to the pandemic. Um, and again, it's true that potentially after a certain amount, it wouldn't matter anymore. Um, and then people who are living alone weren't doing as well as people who are not living alone. Again, obvious reason why. Females were not doing as well as males, potentially because they were taking uh, more responsibilities over things like childcare and housework. So I don't wanna give a view that everyone is, is adapted within a month. It's just the average that we see in the population. And the consistent theme through so much of what we've been talking about is that sense of agency and control. and. So to some extent, there's always a bit of an illusion in that, but it does seem to me to be something that I keep coming back to in terms of both what is effective as a political campaign message and actually effective in policy 
in the, the practical policy that you implement, things that give the individual a sense that they have agency in the outcome, that we're going to be more satisfied with you know, the, the, the service that was delivered, uh, and they're going to be more comfortable and happy with the, the society they're living in because they feel they had some input into the output that they got. Yeah, absolutely. Whenever you can give people a choice. So one, re one way to enhance a sense of control is giving people a choice. And when you can do that, that usually has positive, it's usually beneficial for people's well-being. So for example, in many states in the US, uh, parents were given an option whether to go um, fully online, hybrid, or in person. Some of some schools, some districts gave all three options. Some gave two options, but almost always you had an option uh, to choose. I mean, I don't want to get too much into the politics of this now because I'm going to let you go in a second. But there is uh, presumably some tension there in terms of you want to give people that sense of agency and control, whereas realistically, in a national emergency, there's an element of saying you've just got to do what you're told, and this is what it is you don't you know it's very hard to give people a sense of agency and control when you're also saying stay in your house don't go out so i think policy is very very important if you want at the end of the day if you need people to do something policy is the answer right so for example if there's a, a rule and it says you cannot go into a grocery store without your mask and there's someone in the entrance making sure you don't that's what's going to make the, the biggest difference right um so undoubtedly the solution is always if if you want people to do if it's very very important and you need them to do a certain thing you have to put in the policy in place that being said you can, you always need to do the best that you can to frame it as why it's advantageous for individuals um and and this is where we had a little bit of optimistic data that we found that people were um you know they didn't think they would be infected perhaps as much as they should but they thought other people around them would. And so a lot of people uh, did what they had to do to mitigate risk, not for themselves, but for other people around them. And I think this is where actually the UK messaging got it exactly right, because their message was stay at home, save lives, save the NHS, right? It wasn't stay at home, save your own life. Um, it was stay at home, save lives. So it, it had two things that it did, ex well, three things that it did exactly right. It was um, focusing on the positive you are saving, right? Um, it was focusing on saving others because people kind of underestimated their own risk, but not necessarily those of others. Um, and it also gave you a sense of control. You are doing something to achieve some kind of outcome. I tell you, Sharon, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time and insight. Um, I feel my mostly caveman brain has really been bathed in some quite high cognition uh, high level information here and and feeling more optimistic as a result which i know is a bias but i think in this case it's a rationally informed one and i'm going to embrace it so thank you very much indeed thank you it was my pleasure thanks so much and that's it for another episode of politics on the couch it just remains for me to once again thank professor tally sherrett to thank Phil, the producer, for all the work he does making this podcast possible. And ultimately, of course, to thank you for listening. Goodbye. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.